Could news of a dirty bomb being built in Kiev be real or an excuse for Russia to launch an escalated attack on Ukraine? If Ukraine is losing the war, might U.S. troops be suiting up to join forces in an actual attack on Russia? Was NATO's strategy in Ukraine a later-day version of the Afghanistan war to collapse the Soviet Union in the 1980s? How fundamentally has the war changed the map for Europe, the U.S., and the world? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we bring you the latest news from the site of war in Ukraine. In our first half hour, we'll hear from Colonel Douglas McGregor about his predictions for how the war in Ukraine is going better for Russia than the media is letting on and how a new escalation in war violence could arrive as soon as November. Then in our second half hour, we hear from independent geopolitical analyst Pepe Escobar about recent developments in the former Soviet territory and about how Europe is adjusting to life without Russian gas and how the world has fundamentally changed forever. On this week's program, eight months into Putin's war, a new era for Ukraine, the European Union, and the world. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 21st, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of Nishinabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. After Prime Minister Imran Khan was overthrown in a U.S.-backed soft coup, Pakistan's unelected, quote, imported government, unquote, has banned the country's most popular politician from office, sparking huge protests. Pakistani scholar Junaid S. Ahmad speaks with Ben Norton about Army Chief Bajwa's friendly trip to Washington and U.S. efforts to pressure Pakistan to weaken ties with China, arm Ukraine in its war with Russia, and recognize apartheid Israel. We also address the assassination of prominent dissident journalist Arshad Sharif. That was under the headline, Video, Pakistan Coup Regime Bans Imran Khan, Dissidents Killed, as U.S. eyes China ties Israel normalization by Junaid S. Ahmad and Ben Norton, posted October 27th, originally published on Multipolarista. The partitioning of Sudan between the North and South has only resulted in a precipitous decline in the economic and social status of the developing state. For many years, the breakup of Sudan was championed by Washington, London, and Tel Aviv in an effort to weaken its oil industry and create further sectional violence, which has plagued both governments in Juba, South Sudan capital, and Khartoum, 
Many indications from the character of the demonstrations in Sudan surrounding the October 25th coup anniversary was the wholesale objection to the United States influenced talks being pushed by the Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The administration of President Joe Biden has maintained the same imperialist foreign policy towards Sudan that was in practice during his predecessors Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Sudan has been pressured by Washington to maintain a pro-Western foreign policy and to politically recognize the state of Israel. That comes from the article, Sudanese continue demonstrations one year after the latest military coup by Abayomi Azikiwe, posted October 27th. As far as Putin's threats go, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg holds to the traditional view. The Russian leader, quote, knows very well that a nuclear war should never be fought and can never be won, unquote. Opacity is another factor complicating the whole business of how we cope with non-strategic nuclear weapons. Numbers regarding the world's tactical nuclear stockpiles remain sketchy. Greater transparency regarding the size of tactical nuclear stockpiles would be an important first step towards establishing international norms against their modernization, proposes Brendan Thomas Noon. Paradoxically, even as such measures as the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons gather greater popularity, the old members of the nuclear club continue to make mischief modernizing and adjusting their arsenals with little intention of ever abolishing them. That comes from the article Tactical Nuclear Fantasists by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted October 27th. Just a parenthesis, Madame Merkel was elected for four terms to the German Chancellor's office for a total of 16 years, 22nd of November 2005 to 8th of December 2021. That was okay. No bad-mouthing. But if China or Russia does it, it's called tightening the grip on power. What a double standard applied by Western bought, yes, corrupted media. People ought to just think about it. That was written under the headline, Video, China's President Xi Jinping secures third term and earns Western criticism by Peter Koenig, Has Aldine, and Press TV, posted October 27th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Right now, as, as tensions begin to develop in Ukraine, it's my privilege to have with me a Colonel Douglas McGregor. He's a retired U.S. Army colonel and a, a government official. He was a former advisor to the Secretary of Defense, and he's been ex- outspoken in any, many interviews against the, the current narrative surrounding the Russian attack on Ukraine and, and joins us now to comment on recent actions and the direction the war may be headed. It's a pleasure to have to host you here uh, Colonel McGregor, welcome. Thank you. Now, there's uh, currently a, a lot of talk uh, that the Russian government 
released information about a, a dirty bomb being used by the Ukrainians as, as a false attack, flag attack. Um, it is a conventional explosives, <clears throat> radioactive material. Uh, what kind of evidence do you know of that, that, that substantiates such a claim? Well, about three weeks ago, uh, President Zelensky, uh, according to the Ukrainian media, a spokesman for the Ukrainian media, announced that uh, he was directing the establishment of a cell consisting of engineers and scientists, uh, Ukrainians, of course, and that they were going to work on a quote-unquote dirty bomb development. And as you point out, the so-called dirty nuclear bomb involves the use of conventional explosives with spent uranium from a conventional uh, nuclear power plant. This uranium is not weapons grade. That is, it's not plutonium. It's not enriched. But it can be used in combination with a conventional explosive to effectively contaminate a very large area that could result in people becoming very ill with uh, radiation poisoning or worse. Now, this was uh, roughly three, four weeks ago. This was not the first time that uh, President Zelensky has brought up the issue of nuclear weapons. Uh, last year, long before this war even started, he raised issues about arming Ukraine with nuclear weapons. Uh, these kinds of things were largely ignored, <clears throat> but he mentioned it again in January, and uh, the Russians made it clear that if a nuclear weapon was used against them, they would retaliate. But Putin has said from the very beginning that uh, the Russians have no intention of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine or anywhere in Eastern Europe. And they've said he personally has said that several times and that nuclear weapons are purely retaliatory. Now, recently, uh, the Russians have become concerned because they say they've detected uh, real evidence for the effort to build such a weapon. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, I do know, though, the following. First of all, Ukraine is not only losing this war, Ukraine is very close to collapse, the very opposite of what you're hearing through the Western media. And I think as a result, they're extremely desperate. And one act of desperation would be to use such a weapon in proximity to Russian troops. And that would mean somewhere in southern Ukraine, because the area the Russians now control is an area inhabited overwhelmingly by Russians, not Ukrainians. And these areas are now formally annexed to Russia. So I would assume that somewhere in the South, if such a weapon existed, that's where they would try to use it. But again, I don't know any more than, frankly, you do regarding the efficacy of these statements. But the Russians took it seriously enough that the Russian Minister of Defense called the Secretary of Defense in the United States as well as the British Minister of Defense and the Turkish Minister of Defense, and expressed his concern and said whatever he did about the potential for such a weapon to be used. Well, just uh, I should point out that there was a joint statement by the foreign ministers of France, the UK, and the US uh, saying that uh, the governments, uh, quote, all reject Russia's transparently false allegations that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb on its own territory, unquote. It's stressing that they could continue supporting Ukraine in, uh, quote, the face of President Vladimir Putin's brutal war of aggression, unquote. And of course, the native NATO secretary generals warned Russia over its false claim that Kiev might use a dirty bomb. 
conventional explosives, you know, the, the, in, in radioactive material. And he tweeted that Russian may not use it as a pretext for escalation. So I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, uh, because I, I think you said in recent, uh, in, in recent interviews that uh, there's uh, an attack by Russia could materialize in the next couple of weeks, I believe. So I, I guess I'm wondering, first of all, how you would refute the, the claims of the Western representatives, and, and then also maybe comment on the kind of escalation that Jens Stoltenberg and others uh, anticipate. Well, first of all, Russia has always enjoyed escalation dominance in this conflict. Uh, the Russians initially went in with a very small force, less than 12, 20% of their ground force. They went in on a very broad front in very small groups uh, of battalion size organizations. That's eight, nine hundred men. And the objective was to minimize damage to civilian infrastructure, minimize loss of civilian life, frankly. They went in that way uh, with the assumption that there would be negotiations, because at the time, what they were asking for was recognition of the rights of the Russian citizens. This is something they've asked repeatedly uh, in the uh, Minsk Accords. They were asking for it again in the context of the two so-called breakaway republics in the East. And they wanted recognition uh, for the legitimate uh, ownership of Crimea by Moscow. Now, these things were rejected out of hand. And of course, the demand for Ukrainian neutrality was rejected. But towards the end of April, after meeting in Istanbul, there there was a, an attempt by Zelensky to say, look, we could live with uh, neutrality and we'll discuss the rest. That was suddenly squashed. And over the next two months, uh, I think the Russian general staff kept arguing for a much larger and more decisive operation. And again, President Putin was unwilling to go there, but did agree that uh, they would be they would go in and protect the Russians living in southern Ukraine. One of the reasons uh, initially that the Russians living in Ukraine stayed away from the Russian forces entering the country was that the Russians had always said that they would leave once they had successfully destroyed Ukrainian armed forces. So the Russian attitude inside eastern Ukraine was, well, if you're going to leave, then we're not going to cooperate with you, because if we do, we'll all be shot and killed by the Ukrainian secret police after you leave. This changed, and President Putin altered the parameters of the operation, said, no, we will stay now, we will protect you, and that's what the Russians have done. At the same time, uh, the Ukrainians, of course, have launched hundreds of, of counterattacks in which they've lost 10, 20, 30, 40,000 lives over the last few months, just devastating losses. And uh, we continue to report that uh, Russia is defeated and Russia is finished. And whenever the Russians have raised anything with us about the possibility of negotiations, the possibility of coming to some sort of ceasefire, we've rejected it. As a result, uh, Putin announced this 300,000-man reservist mobilization. And it's very clear now that groups of Russian forces, numbering over 500,000, have assembled in western Russia, southern Ukraine, and in Belarus. So an offensive, a major conventional, what we would call a high-end conventional uh, offense, is coming in November and December. Precisely when, I don't know, but I think it depends very heavily on the weather. 
because right now the ground is still very muddy. They've had lots of rain. They'll wait until the ground freezes because that obviously affords mobility. In the meantime, to show you just how badly things are going for the Ukrainians, they have no power. Uh, the electrical grid has been devastated. Uh, they have been unable to move forces on the railroads except with the use of diesel engines. And I'm, I'm informed that those diesel engines are being found, targeted, and destroyed. At the same time, the Ukrainians have now withdrawn their armor, tanks, armored fighting vehicles, because they don't have the fuel to move them which puts the Ukrainians in a position of attacking either on foot or using things we call technicals, in other words, pickup trucks with uh, uh, automatic cannon. And the counterattacks themselves have been reduced from, say, 40 or 50,000 at a time, directed at a specific point where they grow dramatically outnumber the Russians, to 10,000, down to 5,000, now down to 1,200, and in some cases only a few hundred. So the Ukrainian forces have lost at least 100,000 soldiers killed, probably have another three or 400,000 wounded, maybe more. Their situation is dire. And the more dire it becomes, the more likely they are going to look for ways to drag the United States and anyone else in NATO that they can drag into the war. And that's the real danger at this point, that we will be seduced into joining the war on, on the ground conventionally something which uh, President Bush said would not happen. But there are more and more indicators that that very definitely could happen. And that would be devastating because the Russian assault that's coming is going to be much closer to what most of us predicted would have happened back in February, which is a very devastating attack with all the weapon systems at their disposal and near simultaneously with ground forces advancing in, in great numbers. Uh, we're not prepared for that. We don't have the numbers of forces to sustain an operation uh, against them. So I, I hope that this is uh, not going to happen. But given General Petraeus's uh, remarks the other day, uh, I think he was sending up a trial balloon and indicating that, yes, we could actually have a quote-unquote coalition of the willing. And that would probably include Poles and Romanians because the rest of the NATO members really want nothing to do with the war against Russia. Wow. Um well, I'll return back to the issue of U.S. forces going back in a minute. But I mean, just to even you were saying that Ukraine is, is clearly losing. Yet what we hear in the press, and I don't think this is fabricating necessarily, is that they're making advances and, and Russia's pulling back. You know, I mean, they, they, they're in that Putin's pushed into a corner and may respond with, you know, a nuclear attack or, or, or no one knows what. But. Um, I mean, could you maybe correct the reports or at least like are, is, is Russia just going to uh, move forward uh, at some point in, in, in November or December to uh, retake the, the, the positions that were lost to them? Uh, first of all, Russia hasn't lost any positions. The only area from which they have actually withdrawn was the area around and east of Kharkov, which is flat and open. And they simply decided that uh, they they would withdraw. They had only 2,000 troops up there. And when the Ukrainians attacked with 40,000, uh, they withdrew those forces. And then they directed artillery, airstrikes, rocket artillery, conventional artillery, and killed about 40%, 30 to 40% of the attacking Ukrainian force. Ukrainians have been held there ever since and have made no further progress. Otherwise, the Ukrainians have taken nothing that has not been taken back. 
On the other hand, there are some areas where the Russians simply decided that there, there was no good defensible terrain. And so they've moved from one area to another distance of perhaps three, four, five miles, sometimes 10 miles to a better position, which afforded them the fields of fire that they needed for effective defense. The audience needs to understand that you're fighting a war in something that's close to Western Kansas as you approach the border with Colorado. There simply isn't much terrain out there of any real significance. So it doesn't make sense to hold on to ground that, that offers no advantage. I think that's, that's what's happened. The West is trying through the media with its information campaign, which is a very effective information campaign, to create the illusion that something good is happening for Ukraine and something bad for Russia. There's no evidence for that. The Russians haven't been hurt by any of this. Economically, we've been hurt. Europe has been hurt, but not Russia. And the Russian military has never really been committed in great numbers and in the way that we normally would expect to see them committed. And that's what you're going to see happen sometime in November and December. And I think that's going to be a very devastating offensive. Uh, I don't think Ukraine will survive it. I think the Ukrainian state and its armed forces will, frankly, collapse. So I, I would just tell people that they are targets of a, a very brilliant uh, psychological operation run uh, by Washington and London across Europe, the United States, and anywhere else they can get in to convince people of things that are simply not true. Uh, and that's that's about it. You know, Leon Trotsky, the old Bolshevik, was approached in 1920 when he was uh, running the show uh, inside the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And one of his comrades said, you know, we can't publish what you want to publish. It's just not true. Trotsky smiled and, and said, look, paper will put up with anything you put on it. And I think what people have learned here in the West is that cable television uh, satellite, TV, radio, whatever, will certainly put up with whatever you put on it. And that's also true for the Internet. And so if you flood the, the airways with enough lies, frequently enough, redundantly and repetitively, eventually people assume it's true. And what I'm trying to tell you is it's not true. And we're about to get an education in November and December. And I think it would be very unwise of Washington to involve itself in any way directly uh, with the Russian military when it conducts these offensive operations. Now, you you mentioned the the, the, pos the prospect of, of American forces actually going in. Uh, I know that there are midterm elections right now that, that might um, affect uh, how America ultimately engages the, the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, it's just like under two weeks now. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, first of all, how would they actually get the, uh, like, I should mention that there's no interest whatsoever in talking about you, the U.S. going in there right now, because like with the, like, as with Vietnam, they more, they uh, committed billions of dollars to this Ukraine operation while people are, you know, there's inflation, the food is cost, cost a lot, uh, gasoline costs a lot. So I, I'm wondering how, how you see that step being taken? I mean, is it something that will happen regardless of how the midterms uh, go forward? How, how, how can you see them actually executing that maneuver? You're, you're, you're talking about Washington and what it, it may do, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, I just want to make, make that clear. Well, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at a number of things. I'm very comfortable talking about military affairs in Europe what's likely, what the Russians will do, and uh, what the Ukrainians are doing. I, 
I, I grew up with large numbers of Ukrainians and Poles, and I studied in Europe for years, and uh, I'm very familiar with uh, Russia and its interests and its uh, military. I, on the other hand, I'm not a very good domestic uh, political analyst. I don't know what's going to happen uh, during the midterms. My suspicion is that the Republican Party will probably win the House. It may or may not win the Senate. Who knows? Whether or not that really makes any difference is, is anybody's guess. Based upon my experience thus far, I haven't seen much evidence for a great change, regardless of who ends up in power in Washington. But I would say the following, that if you are committed ideologically, and that's what we're dealing with right now, the, the people running our government are not Americans in the traditional sense. In other words, these are not practical people. These are not pragmatic people who are willing to do whatever works and are interested preeminently in prosperity and avoiding war. That's Historically, that's what we Americans have been interested in for most of our history since 1776. These people actually want a confrontation with Russia, and they see Russia as this enormous obstacle to uh, the utopian world they think they want to create along with the World Economic Forum and, and others of that ilk. So, if you're interested in that, I think that you have an incentive to act before uh, November 8th, because if you wait until after November 8th, you may end up, you can't you can't be certain, you may end up with a Congress that won't support you in what you want to do. Whereas right now, since uh, the White House effectively controls both houses, you saw that happen with the, the so-called uh, left-wing Democrats who stood up and said, we think it's time to talk with Russians and how they rapidly retreated from that position when they were challenged by the White House. Uh, they think that uh, the best time to act would be now as opposed to later, because you might have growing numbers of Republicans and Democrats who are uncomfortable with the war. And they're also dealing with all the other issues that you mentioned. And so if you want to do this, you better act sooner rather than later. That's my concern. And you have Petraeus who's talking about this so-called coalition of the willing. And I know that people in Europe, if you just go on the internet, go on YouTube, if you, if you can get it before YouTube eliminates the videos, and see the numbers of people in Romania, for instance, that are demonstrating against NATO and against the presence of the 100th Air Mobile Division in their country, see the demonstrations in Paris, in Germany, in the Czech Republic, everywhere that you look, you see opposition to war with Russia. Uh, no one wants to be at war with Russia. The Europeans would like this to end since they're the ones that are going to suffer the most as a consequence. We are driving this train. So again, if you listen to Petraeus, who I think is just running a trial balloon for the administration, and he talks about this coalition of the willing, and right now that looks like it's probably the Poles who have a government that is fanatically anti-Russian that wants to attack the Russians, along with the Romanians who may or may not be terribly excited, but have probably been pressured by us to join, that would be your coalition of the willing, because the British really have almost nothing to send to Ukraine to fight. They could send a few thousand, but I don't know whether or not the, the new government in Britain would be anxious to do that. The French have, they're tied down in Africa. There's not much they can send. So there's not much that the European NATO members can contribute so you go in with uh, some number of maybe 150,000 Romanian, Polish, and American forces. If that happens, then we will be at war with Russia and Ukraine. 
And I don't think the American people have any appetite for that. And the American people, Michael, as you know, are not really following this very carefully because they have serious problems of their own here at home that are far more important to them. And that's the problem. Uh, a minority of people are in control of your government. They are, they are ideologues and they are committed to this war. And they are not asking for a declaration of war. They are simply telling Congress, <clears throat> this is what you, I want you to do. And Congress is being rewarded with whatever it wants financially as it, if it go along, goes along with this war policy. It's a very dangerous situation. I hope it doesn't come to that. But if they wait until after 8 November, then they're very, very much in danger of being steamrollered. So I think they're probably going to try and act before then. That's not going to change the outcome. It's still not going to be good for us. But I, I see that as a possibility. Colonel McGregor, it's been a pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much for your analysis and, uh, and thoughts. All right, Michael. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We've been speaking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, a retired U.S. Army colonel and government official. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The Russia-Ukraine military conflict drags on now for close to two-thirds of a year. Of course, there is a lot more going on here that, that uh, has been delivered during other wars fought over the last quarter century. Speaking to these issues, we are delighted to be joined once again by Pepe Escobar. Pepe Escobar is a columnist at the Cradle, editor at, at large at Asia Times, and an independent geopolitical analyst focused on Eurasia. Uh, thank you for joining us, Pepe. Uh, it it's good to have you. Thank you. Uh, I believe when last we spoke, it was just before Russian troops uh, crossed into Ukraine uh, for, for what they called a, a special military operation. The Western press called it an, um, an even close, uh, a provoked, an unprovoked invasion. Um, now, close to eight months later, we are on the, in the month of October with several uh, interesting twists. Uh, four Ukrainian oblasts uh, voted in favor of joining the Russian Federation. There was an attack on pipelines, uh, North, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, uh, which targets German gas supplies. There was an attack on the Crimean Bridge and the Russians' response with major attacks on several Ukrainian cities. It's truly a, a black October in terms of this war offensive. What is your take on these chains of events? Has Russia moved into a new phase in this war or are they like the Western press say, adapting to the, the brilliant and courageous endeavors of the Ukrainian army? Well, there's nothing courageous about the Ukrainian army for starters. Uh, well, I'm into this 24-7 uh, for uh, eight months. Um, it's, uh, it's very complicated to uh, put it in, the, in two or three minutes because it's an extremely complex series of uh, interconnected developments. But basically, this is a war of NATO against Russia. Ukraine is a mere pawn in a much, much larger and complex game. The Russians from the beginning, and I mean uh, President Putin and his uh, Security Council, they sought that uh, 
this could be over with relatively quickly, according to, I would say, faulty information that they had from the Russian Ministry of Defense. So uh, they learn from their mistakes, just like the Chinese learn from their mistakes in their development process for the past uh, four or five decades. The Russians were, they started to tweak their machine. They had very important victories uh, uh, in the battlefields, even considering the fact that they were fighting, and they are fighting the, I would say the top well-trained non-NATO army, which is in fact a NATO army. Everybody that follows what's going on in Ukraine knows that, first of all, uh, the orders come from the Americans, from Washington and Brussels, NATO. The deployments of uh, the main uh, uh, advisors and trainers, etc., they are all NATO. Uh, Ukraine, not only Kiev, Lviv, but the main uh, command and control centers are infested with uh, Americans, Brits, Poles, Canadians, etc. There are lots of mercenaries uh, in the key positions inside different battalions of the Ukraine armed forces. So for all practical purposes, and not to mention the weaponizing, which is absolutely brutal coming from the West, uh, which has depleted NATO's arsenals, by the way, and to a great extent, uh, some American arsenals as well. So for all practical purposes, for anyone who knows a little bit about, <laughs> about wars, in fact, and about uh, what's going on in the terrain, this is a NATO war against Russia. Mm -hmm. And Russia knew that from the beginning. So, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, I think the, the thinking... In, in Washington is that this would turn out to be like Afghanistan, you know, Afghanistan 2.0, where, where they use yeah, reserves, yeah. you know, fighting the Mujahideen that it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, how is this battle fundamentally different from the, the Afghanistan offensive, basically? Well, this, this is what they, well, uh, these planners in Washington, these neocon, neoliberal con cycles that uh, plan this war, by the way, they don't have plan B. The, plan A was always an Afghanization of this war. Okay, let's give uh, the Russians now their uh, Afghanistan in their western borderlands instead of the Indukush. It's the same thing. But uh, it cannot happen, first of all, because now they're fighting a very well-prepared Russian army, and it's, and it's not even the Russian army. For the moment, they are fighting 10% of the Russian army. Their best troops are not on the terrain. They are in Russian territory. Their best weapons, they are uh, deployed once in a while. Everything from tanks to King's all hypersonic missiles, very sparingly. They are using old equipment. They are using old missiles, uh, not their best ones. They are using old tanks. And they are not using their first-class troops, with very, very few exceptions. Uh, most of the heavy, heavy fighting, I would say 90% of the heavy, heavy fighting so far was done by the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, militias. 
they are their own uh, forces. Uh, the guys who are very, very well trained from the Wagner private military company, the Chechens, which are absolutely extraordinary fighters. So these were these were the the forces on the foreground so far. Now it's a complete from now on it's going to be a completely different uh, thing. First of all, because this war was being run essentially by the headquarters in Moscow by old school generals and they were far far away from a few key realities on the terrain and this was being pointed by russian military correspondents embedded with a lot of battalions on the terrain the good thing about uh, russia is that uh, uh, the guys at the ministry of defense they actually listen to the military correspondents and the military analysts and they they take into consideration what these guys are actually seeing on the terrain 24 7 and then they tweak the machine the big tweak which happened in a matter of a few days ago was essentially a response for two terrorist attacks first of all against the crimea bridge which uh, sorry uh, that, that that happened uh, uh, later but first of all in terms of the order of priorities because this was a direct response from a the, the terrorist attack against the Crimea Bridge. And of course, against the bombing of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, which is uh, an absolutely Kafka-esque situation because everyone knows who did it, mm. but you cannot say it. Everyone includes people in Brussels, people in the chancelleries all around, all the Western capitals, all, 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 all of the Asian capitals. Everybody knows who did it. But obviously, you cannot say it because then uh, they're gonna, the usual suspects are going to be even more enraged, cornered, and rabid than they already are. And of course, uh, the bombing of the Crimea Bridge was essentially a, an operation by the uh, SBU, uh, Ukrainian intelligence, putting today, you know, after, uh, during and after a meeting of the Security Council, actually said that on the record again. So uh, what, what, what they're going to do about the centers of decision, nobody knows because this is a decision by Putin, by Patrushev, and by the Security Council. It's going to be, uh, I would say, a short, medium, and long-term response. Asymmetric, lethal, and really, really hardcore. We are already witnessing the first part of the response, which is finally which is something that Russian military correspondents were already begging for, an attack on Ukrainian infrastructure, power infrastructure, essentially. Considering this is not really a special military operation anymore, now this is war. And now the Russians at least uh, recognize it on the record. We are at war against a terrorist state. This terrorist state is responsible for Anything you can imagine from a bombing a nuclear plants to using civilians as uh, human shields to, to uh, uh, terrorist attacks in sequence against uh, infrastructure built by Russia and against Russian territory in Crimea, civilian infrastructure, the Crimea Bridge. So Putin, of course, because he's a legalist and because he, in a sense, he procrastinates 
very, very, very hardcore decisions. He couldn't escape it anymore, and he knew that he could authorize this uh, seamless uh, movement from special military operation to counter-terrorist operation because Russian public opinion is behind him, mm. because of the Nord Streams, and especially because of the attack on Crimea. Mm. So now we have a de facto, but still not nominated, anti-terror operation. And most of all, which I think was the most important decision of the past few days, uh, controlled by a centralized headquarter, led by uh, famous <laughs> General Armageddon, <laughs> General Sergei Surovkin, which is the since 2017 the command uh, the commander of the Russian Aero Transport Forces, with vast on the ground experience in Syria, which is now applying in Ukraine. So his first day on the job, which was on Monday uh, last week, when he issued that famous, <laughs> he, came, he came with that fantastic quote, uh, for the uh, enemies of Russia, morning does not start with coffee. <laughs> and start, starts with bombing of infrastructure, which is something that is being pursued methodically by General Armageddon and his staff for practically two weeks now. Yeah. So this is what we're going to have. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I just was thinking back to what you were saying about everybody knowing about the who it was that uh, bombed or, or sabotaged the, the, the Nord Stream pipelines. And I, I'm wondering when we're talking not just about the, the leadership, but the people, you know, and uh, you, you, if, if, if the, 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 the politicians their leaders are not i mean if they believe that america is not uh, was responsible and i see that seems likely i mean would russia do it but uh it, it seems like how how much how long how much longer could they continue to vote in politicians that continue to support that lie you know what i mean i mean it's like some one way or the other it's got to give to the the population generally or or is it that that I mean, even if it's not that intense right now, see how they feel in December, January. You know what I mean? So I mean, I'm just wondering. It's gonna, how, how, yeah, it's how gonna, it's, it's it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen during uh, uh, the visit of General Winter, which is coming soon. In fact, it's already happening in a sense already in a country that is. Uh, famous for being in the vanguard of revolutionary movements historically. France. What's happening in France right now, in the streets of France, and now with a general strike as well, is intimately linked to France's support of NATO and France's role inside NATO. So these strikes, these protests are, well, there are so many reasons you could spend days talking about it. There are uh, internal reasons, there are French political reasons, uh, the, the aspects related to the internal crisis in France provoked by high taxes, uh, soon uh, exploding uh, electricity bills, and the privatization policies of the Le Petit Roi, uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, government, but they're also against NATO. And, and, you, and you see that uh, a very interesting phenomenon that... Uh, because the French are extremely politicized compared to most other European nations, 
you see people making the direct connection between the crisis and the absolutely absurd, no holds bar, Russophobic support between commerce of the European Union, especially, and NATO for Ukraine, and the banishment of uh, the word peace, in fact. Uh, you cannot, if you say peace, you are a Putinista, you are a fifth columnist, uh, you are a terrorist by definition. No. Uh, when you see those uh, subspecimens in Brussels of the European uh, Commission, especially, or uh, the European Parliament, the European Council, etc., every time they open their toxic mouth, it's always about. Uh, we're gonna. Uh, Ukraine is gonna win, and we have to win because uh, we have. We must defeat Putin. It's a circular argument, very childish, not based by facts, and obviously precluding any possibility of dialogue. So this is the official NATO position, which is the position that NATO imposes on the European Union and the European Commission. These are mere patsies. These people are. Uh, First of all, they are unelected bureaucrats. They are despised all across Europe by voters and by citizens of individual nations. And they live in a Brussels bubble. So the problem is uh, there's no sovereignty for nations who belong to the European Union. I, I, I know that I live in Paris half of the year. Uh, I know Brussels inside out uh, professionally because I've been covering Brussels since the 90s. If you know how it works, if you know how the Brussels machine works, you know how it's one of the most, if not the most anti-democratic body in the whole world of international relations, international politics. And these people live in a bubble and they are fanatics. They are ideological fanatics. They are not only Russophobic, they are Iranophobic, they are Islamophobic, and they are xenophobic as well. And Considering what one of their idiots said a few days ago, that Europe is a garden and the rest of the world is a jungle, they are racists. And 99% of them are racist. I've met quite a few. And they are, most of them, racists as well. And they do believe that they are some sort of elected uh, elite in the world and they should rule the world based on the absolutely gigantic machine of the European Union uh, institutions. So uh, when you mentioned in, in, uh, in, in your question populations, those that are not brainwashed have already connected the dots. The problem is they are not on the mainstream media anywhere. They are not showing up in the 8 o'clock news anywhere. They are not in, 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 the, in the mainstream papers anywhere, the European equivalents of the Washington Post or, or the New York Times. You find them on the Internet. Many of them are banned in academia if they uh, express their opinions loudly, they are banned from academia as well, not yes. only from media, but they exist. And, and now you, you, you see a groundswell of informed opinion, at least in many uh, internet channels, different languages across Europe, in, in Germany, even in Germany, in Germany, in Italy, in France, especially, not in the Northern countries, and certainly not uh, among those fanatics, uh, Poles and uh, the Baltic midgets. No, these are uh, the countries that really matter in Europe. There is, uh, 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 for the moment, in, not so much invisible, but occult and kept apart, informed public opinion. 
that and people are starting to pay attention to that. So this is a long process, which may be not so long because winter is going to be here in full force in uh, less than two months. The situation all over Europe is going to be absolutely dire in terms of energy crisis, food crisis, electricity crisis, uh, you name it. And then a lot of people, even the brainwashed masses, will start to make the, these connections as well. Well. Just looking at the, the broader picture, I mean, we've seen that the sanctions that were placed on Russia, you know, backfiring in a sense. I mean, one could argue the Europeans are, are hurting much more than the Russians. And Saudi Arabia allows their oil to now be priced in the one, the, the Chinese uh, currency. I mean, the value of the U.S. dollar is therefore in, in some crisis. A problem since this is financially how the U.S. has survived financially for so long. Uh, but, but, but talk a little bit, if you could, about how the world we live in has fundamentally changed as a result of the decision by the U.S. and NATO to allow this war against Russia via Ukraine to happen. Well, this war has been going on for 30 years. Now we are at uh, the most acute stage of the war, in fact, and especially since 2014, since Maidan which was essentially an American operation, but with very large uh, German input as well. Merkel was into Maidan uh, up to her neck and uh, the BND, German intelligence, up to their necks as well. It was not only the, those American cycles, neocon cycles, neocon, neoliberalcon cycles. So this was a concerted NATO operation because they thought that they could, could have this... Uh, Perfect Trojan horse in Russia's western borderlands. And okay, let's turn Ukraine into a rabid, weaponized to death uh, robot to go against Russia. And this explains as well why in February we had the beginning of the special military operation. I, I wrote about this and I talked about this extensively since then. But uh, once again, I think we should uh, go back to the top three reasons. First of all, Russian intelligence knew, the SVR, Russian Foreign, Foreign Intelligence, knew that there would be a blitz, an imminent blitzkrieg against the populations of Donbass by the Ukrainian forces massed on the other side of the line of contact. And this was a matter of uh, dates, in fact. They said, oh, it could be early uh, February, mid-February, late February, or uh, late March. And that was a key point for uh, the decision by Putin to recognize the Donetsk and Luhansk republics uh, and protect them. This means, of course, launching what was in fact a preemptive operation. And from the beginning, it was qualified as a special military operation, not a war. First of all, because Putin and the leadership circles in, in Moscow, they, they don't see Ukraine as a, 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 a war foe. They see as a brotherly nation that was taken over by rabid neo-Nazis and hyper-nationalists, very, very dangerous people with fascistoid or nazistoid tendencies, which is absolutely correct, considering the people who are in power in Kiev. Second, uh, the whole story of the bioweapons labs, because Russia already had 
intelligence from their moles inside Ukraine, which they later confirmed after the, the beginning of the special military operation that there was a string of American bioweapons labs in Ukrainian territory. And they were experimenting with also weapons that would be directed against Russia, essentially. And number three, the reason was uh, provided by Zelensky himself. It was during the Munich Security Conference uh, in the weekend before the start of the, of the we, 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 nobody knew that the special military operation would happen next week. But during the weekend, Zelensky said that uh, uh, Kiev was considering uh, coming back to a nuclear program. So then we have the perfect trifecta, in fact. These trifecta, all, all these elements in this trifecta constitute a casus belli. And that's how Russia examined. So we have three casus belli superimposed against us. We have to do something about it. What they didn't consider from the beginning, and I had very, very complicated discussions with anal Russian analysts, German analysts, American analysts, is that they, uh, the, 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 the intel that they had about the Russophobia and the way Ukrainians had been brainwashed against Russia was not uh, correct, essentially. And they saw that that could be, for instance, a military coup in Kiev, and this would be over in a few weeks. No, no way. So that's why they, they had to start tweaking the operation. And for instance, they, when they went to, to Mariupol, for instance, they, they, was, they were trying to get rid, to go for the juggler in terms of exterminating neo-Nazis. They did. The problem is later some of these neo-Nazis were part of a prisoner exchange and, all, and they en ended up in Turkey. But for Russia, the most important thing was not the neo-Nazis per se, was to get back some of their uh, very, very important Russian prisoners of war. And this, this move was very criticized inside Russia. So uh, all these elements are essential to understand why the special military operation started in February, how it has been developed, how the, the Russians are learning from their mistakes, how they don't want to destroy Ukraine, because then you have to, you have to be reconstructed, especially the north, northeast, east, southeast, and south, which are going to be part of Russia at the end of this. Everybody knows that. It's going to be an expanded Novorossiya, and it can go all the way to Odessa, which from now on, we know that it will, because... Uh, uh, the signs coming from the Russian leadership, especially from uh, Med Medvedev, which is part of the Security Council, is that uh, now this is uh, go all the way and it means decapitating the regime in Kiev. So the Zelensky regime will be finished by the Russians. What we don't know is uh, the timetable. The only people who know the timetable are Putin, Patrushev, and maybe two or three of the Minister of Defense. Even uh, General Armageddon, Gen General... Uh, Surovkin, who's controlling now the uh, the strikes against us, he's uh, he's a sort of uh, the perfect uh, the perfect storm general for the circumstances. Uh, in, in terms of coordinating the whole, not only the aerial forces but the ground forces, a centralized command, and having the big picture in his mind and uh, informing his decisions is something that they didn't have before. Mm. So it's all on his back. So the responsibility is immense. And to his credit, his first press conference, which was the beginning of this week, he was extremely realistic. And he said, look, 
the situation in, uh, in many parts of the front is tense, his own words, and I may have to, uh, to take some very, very difficult decisions. So he, he, he already was a folk hero in Russia. He became even more of a mythic <laughs> folk hero because he's telling the truth. He said, look, this is not going to be easy. It's not a walk in the park. Difficult decisions. We're going to have losses. But uh, that's it. We're, we're doing our best to fulfill the mandate. And the mandate from the beginning hasn't changed. Is uh, demilitarization, which means uh, Ukraine is being demilitarized and will be demilitarized up to the end. And denazification, which is a much more complex operation because it involves de-brainwashing not only the elites and the oligarchs, but uh, you know, the whole practically the whole population living west of the Dnieper River. But uh, overall, what is now a counter-terrorist operation is entering a new stage, and things are going to be extremely hot, especially now with winter coming. And the initiative is going to be on the Russian side, and Russia can decide, okay. How long gonna? They could have finished that off in one week. They decided not to. Now they can decide to finish it in a few months, or wait until the end of winter when uh, uh, the U.S. is gonna be uh, discombobulated and Europe is gonna be practically devastated. And they say, okay, you want to sit down and talk? So okay, we can we can have this uh, going for um, as long as you want. <laughs> it's the ball is in your court now. You want some kind of deal, some kind of negotiations? Okay, we are open for negotiations, and we said from the beginning that we're open for negotiations. You said no. You criminalized even the concept of peace. Okay, so now let's talk. And then we're going to have a devastated Ukraine, a rump Ukraine, and we're going to have a Novorossiya expanding all the way to Odessa and linking with Transnist Transnistria is going to be the ultimate nightmare for all those NATO cycle planners. And Russia is okay. Uh, you know, they have all the time in the world. Wow. Well, I'm really, uh, yeah, we're really appreciative of, of this sort of analysis, which is uh, counter much of the Western press. Uh, it's good to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us and speaking Thank with you. Pepe Escobar, right. a columnist so at the Cradle, Bye -bye. and an independent geopolitical analyst. That's it for this week. Join us next week for more on the Russia-Ukraine-NATO conflict. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.